if I would have taken a little bit more time on the first session, I was going to ask you these questions. We can, we're going to have a Q&A later for those of you who want to stay. So these are the questions I was going to ask. Um, do you have a definition of a disciple? Do you clarify how you're going to make one? And do you have the experiences, vehicles, and tools needed? So I just want you to think through this. Do you, do you have a clear definition and do your people know it? Because you can't make what you de- can't state. And if your people of your church don't know what a disciple is, I, guess, I would guess they're probably not making one. Um, so I just want to, I'm going to skip past the other one. The other thing I wanted to be able to just ask is, do you have a, a discipleship pathway that addresses all the stages of spiritual development? And I don't, because this talk that I'm supposed to give now is not about this. I just want to put it in front of you, and maybe we can talk about it in the Q&A time. But I... My interaction with a lot of churches, they have primarily a plan for helping people uh, become newborns. And then sadly, they stay infants for their entire life in the church. So have we thought through the entire process? That's not what this talk is about. Um, I'm going to be talking about our emotional health, uh, but I wanted to start there um, just because I didn't get to put that in front of you. Here's the question I want to ask of all of you, and don't raise your hand. This is not a public question. This is a private question. But if you were to be asked, how many of you want to be known as weak or in need? How many would say, that's me? I want to be known as weak. I want to be known as in need. And sadly, I would say that m- many in the Christian faith have believed that to be weak or in need is actually to be spiritually immature. And yet you hear the Apostle Paul when he asked God to remove this thorn in his flesh three times, say this, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong." I don't know that we believe that. At least I don't hear it taught very much. A few years ago after my journey that I shared briefly about uh, in the first session of my own emotional health, um, the guy who I met with, I I was introduced to a ministry called Tin Man Ministries. Tin Man didn't know he had a heart. And uh, the whole idea is I had to get my heart back. And didn't, I didn't know how to attend to my emotional world because as a boy I was taught that big boys don't cry. Sticks and stones might break your bones, but names should never hurt you. If you're bored, it's your own fault. Go find something to do. In other words, it's not okay to be sad, hurt, or lonely. I can't have those feelings. Those are, those are feelings that we just got to push down and stuff. And sadly, as a kid, I learned how, and the church then affirmed it through passages like Jeremiah. You know, the heart does deceitful above all things who can discern it. Problem is that it's not talking about your emotions, to be clear. It's talking about the seed of your soul. It's talking about the, the true you. And what does Jeremiah and Ezekiel go on to say? You need a new heart. That, that doesn't mean you should get rid of your emotions. <laughs> it means that you actually need to have a heart that feels. Like you need a new heart that's not hardened, but actually is soft, is flesh. It's got a sensitivity to it. And sadly, I grew up in a context where all of that was bad. And so I shut it down until I couldn't shut it down anymore. And as I share with you in the first session, I hit a wall. I got a lot of help, thankfully. I met with a 10-man coach weekly for 14 months, did a week-long intensive. I got my heart back. 
And if you were to talk to my wife or my kids, they would say, I'm not the same man I used to be. Praise God. And it means I'm more present, I'm more alive, I'm more emotionally engaged, I'm more compassionate, I'm more empathetic. Hopefully I'm becoming more like Jesus. But I wasn't told that that was the way it ought to be. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have agreed with Paul that being weak is a good thing, that being in need is a good thing. I would have said, no, that's, that's for immature people. That's, for, like, that's a weak Christian who's certainly not strong. And sadly, I now know that I was wrong. And instead of boasting in my uh, strengths, I would much rather boast in my weakness. And I remember when my Tin Man coach finally said I was allowed to talk about the things that I'd been learning, because he said, he said, Jeff, you've been a Christian vending machine for far too long. You take in content, and then you give it away every week, and it never gets to be yours long enough for it to change you. He said, I want to, we want this content that you're going through to change you, so that when you're ready for it to come out, everyone have already seen it, because it's so in your life. And when he finally gave me permission to speak about it, I was speaking in, a, in Charleston, and uh, the guy had hired me to speak on gospel fluency, uh, but I let him know there was some new stuff coming, <laughs> and uh, going to be some, about, some around emotions. And he's like, well, how are you feeling about tomorrow? I'm like, well, I, I, I feel fear, and I feel shame, and I, I feel a little lonely, and I feel anger. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, you asked how I feel. So I'm giving you my feelings. He confided in me later. He got really nervous about whether or not I was even going to be qualified to speak anymore. He's like, I thought I was getting Jeff Vanderstelt. He'd be confident and secure and not have any weaknesses. He said, so I was really nervous. And I said, let me ex- describe. I'm, I have fear because I know there's things that are bigger than me in the room that are outside my control. And I know that having a healthy fear means that I got to look to God to take care of the things that are out of my control. And I have some real um, shame because I... I know my limitations, and without him doing a work, I, I'm nothing. So I have a healthy shame about my own limitation, and, and I have some real anger that I hope God will work and move and change hearts tomorrow. But I feel lonely because sometimes I'm standing up by myself, and I often forget he's with me. So I need to say that out loud so I'll remember that he's with me. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I did talk on gospel fluency, but I went to the heart. I'm going to do a little bit of, I'm going to do more of the heart than gospel fluency because a lot of you have heard me teach on gospel fluency before. And um, I'll, I'll be honest, it was probably the most profound talk I've ever given. It was out of my weakness. And one of my friends who's been with me for a long, long time, he said, Jeff, there was like something I'd never experienced in the room happening. And he said, I think it's because it was so much more about him and not you. And I, I just want to just suggest that I think Paul's right. In fact, I think Jesus is right because he's the best example of this. In fact, I would say he was the most in-need person that ever lived. Remember what he says in John 5? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I can do nothing on my own. That's Jesus. That's remarkable. I don't think we think of Jesus as weak or in need because I think we think of him only in in strength, but he came and lived the life you and I couldn't live. He did it perfectly, absolutely dependent upon the Father every single second. He lived a truly interdependent life to the point at which he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
And I don't think that's just the deity in the bodily form, though it is. I think it's also what he prayed in John 17. Father, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us. And may they be one so that the world would know that you sent me. He says, I've given them the glory that you've given me. Well, what is glory? Glory is when the invisible nature of God is, is made known. That's what glory is, when something that you can't see, is able, you make it able to be seen. And Jesus is the glory of God in a physical form. But then he says, I gave it to them. And what is he saying? I gave my life in you and your life in me to them so that they would live the same kind of interdependent life in the world, both with you as well as with each other. What is that? That's people who are in need. You don't live interdependent life if you don't need people. You don't live dependent on God if you don't need him. And sadly, many of us have tried to live as though we don't need God and we don't need people, even though we preach it like crazy. But some of us are the most independent people around, not dependent or interdependent. And my part that I'm real sad about is I think that many of us are either unaware of or want to pretend that we have no real needs and desires. We're Stoics. We've given into the thinking, I think, therefore I am. We bought into the enlightenment that knowledge, apart from relationship, we'll call it rationalism, is the way to go. If we just get a bunch of knowledge and ideas, then we're going to be more mature. But I promise you, I've met plenty of people who have PhDs who are not mature at all. Not emotionally, not relationally, not in love. And so I'm saddened by that. And, I'm, and I'll be honest, I have a great fear for the church these days because I think we continue to beat the drum that if you just know the right ideas, then you'll have love. But Paul is really clear. You can actually have all the right ideas and have no love. And if you have no love, you are nothing. And love, according to the Bible, is not an emotion. Love is the giving of oneself to another and the receiving of another self to, the, to yourself. And you only do that if you're in need. <laughs> you'll never love or receive love unless you have need. And I was interacting with some leaders in Indonesia years ago. I used to do some training online with these business leaders, and uh, the per person who facilitated it said, hey, heads up, they're really troubled because the news about Ravi Zacharias just came out. And I would guess that they're probably going to want to talk about that. So I'm like, okay, I'll be ready for that. And sure enough, first question they asked before I even start anything, they're like, hey, do you think Ravi was a Christian? And why do you think he did that? And I'm like, well, I don't get to answer the first one. I think so. From everything I can see, I would say yes. Why did he do it? I don't know. I didn't know Robbie very well. I met him briefly, but never got to know him. Um, I wonder if Robbie had experienced significant loss in his life and maybe never had the opportunity to mourn that loss and therefore get that loss comforted. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. I wonder if he just never had the opportunity or was never taught that that was okay. And so he went to false forms of comfort. I wonder if maybe Robbie was really lonely but couldn't admit that to anybody and so he stayed lonely. And in his loneliness needed intimacy. So he went and found a false sense of intimacy. So I wonder if Robbie was hurt ever in his life and never got attended to and never got healing. So he went and found a false sense of healing through inappropriate attention and touch. I said, I don't know. I would bet that's probably somewhere in there. And, and what was I doing? I was basically just looking at James with them. What causes quarrels or fights? Is it not this, that your passions, by the way, the word passion and desire are neutral in this text? 
but what we do with them is not? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and you, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, what I think is going on in this text, because I think we've, we've wrongly taken this text and made it like, don't have desire and don't have passion. Of course, Jonathan Edwards have something to say about that. So would Augustine, so would John Piper. Like, there's a whole people written about that from an Augustinian point of view. And Augustine, as you know, recognized that our real issue primarily isn't that we have wrong ideas, but we, we have passions that we aren't paying attention to or aren't strong enough or aren't being rightly met. And I think what James is saying here is all of you have passions going on inside of you, and if you don't know what they are, if you don't attend to them, if you don't pay attention to them, if they aren't appropriately met, they will find a way to be met. Your passions and desire are like the, the roots of an oak tree. They will break through a sidewalk to get water. This is who you are. So I, I, I just want to pause and say, do you know how to attend to what's going on inside of you, what you want, what you desire, what you need? Because I guarantee you, every leader that's fallen in the last 10 years didn't start off planning that. Bill Hybels didn't plan that. James McDonald hopefully didn't plan that. I don't think Driscoll planned that. I don't think Robbie planned that. And the list could go on. We could just keep going, right? And I'm only saying them because they're public names that you all know about. But we've got to say it out loud. Like, there's got to be an end to this. But where is the end? It's you admitting you are weak, you admitting you are in need. And how do you become aware of your needs and desires? Here's the big bad word of the day, feelings. God's given you your feelings to make you aware of your needs and your desires. Okay? Where does that come from? You were born with a part of your brain that feels 95% developed when you came into the world. Okay, that's why parents, what are we listening for when a baby's born? You can respond. Cry. Because the cry is them telling you they have feelings. That's all that is. And if you're an attuned parent, you know that's a sad cry, that's an angry cry, that's a scared cry, that's a discomforted cry. Like There's something going on in this little baby. And the remarkable way in which God designed a child is that when they come into the world, they can make all their needs known. And they'll do it until you meet those needs, right? They'll cry all night long if they have to. And what, what, what healthy parents do is they attend to the cry of their child, they attune to their needs, and they give them to them appropriately in a relational way. That's what healthy parents do. Now, here's the scary thing. Most little kids at a very early age were told to stop having feelings. And why is that scary? Because the part of your brain that does rational thinking in women, isn't fully developed till you're about 23 to 25. In men, 28, 26 to 28. So what we're fundamentally telling our children is you don't get to use your brains to make your needs known. And what it does is it leads to all kinds of inappropriate behaviors of trying to have our needs met in very inappropriate ways. And I could go through the list of what those are, but you all know them, right? There's eating disorders, drinking, there's cutting, there's sexual in, inappropriate behaviors. There, I mean, the list goes on and on and on according to all the dysfunctions that come as a result of us trying not to be human. That's fundamentally what's going on, right? And, and 
This is how it works. If you feel, then you need. Okay, if I feel sad, then I need comfort. If I need comfort, I'll desire a comforter. So if I need, I'll desire. If I desire, I'll long, which means I'll reach outside of myself to get the thing I need from someone else. By the way, this is at the heart of the gospel. If I feel guilt, then I need forgiveness. If I need forgiveness, I'll realize I need a forgiver. If I realize I need a forgiver, I'll reach out to the only one who can forgive me of my sins, which is Jesus. Now, we know this one around the feeling of guilt, but we don't, need to, we don't know how to apply it to all the other feelings. It's like we've got one category. Feeling guilt is a good thing. But what about all the other feelings that God gave you? Because if I long, I'll hope, which means I'll expect a relationship to meet me and give me what I need. This leads me to look to God and to others. God, let me say it in a different way. Feelings are what make you aware of what you need, what you need, and being needy or in need is what opens you to a relationship with God and others. That is the way forward. So fundamentally, you've been telling your church, hey, people, stop being so needy. You're fundamentally, fundamentally saying, stop being in a relationship. Why is it that the, one of the number one problems for most pastors and spiritual leaders is loneliness? It's because they don't know how to feel their feelings and go to God and others in a way that says, I'm being vulnerable, I'm in need, I need help. Why was it when the guy asked me, how are you feeling about tomorrow, and I told him what I was actually feeling, he felt so uncomfortable? Because it also made me vulnerable, and he had to respond to that, right? He could have said, like, forget you, I'm out of here, or tell me more about that. And thankfully, he moved toward me, not away from me, when I became vulnerable with him. Now, here's the reality. This is how it works, but we are born into a broken world, right? The emotional world has been hijacked by the evil one. Okay, you guys know the story in Genesis. Um, I'm going to try to, because of time, I'm trying to move fast, past it really, or through it quickly. The key thing is, did God really say, right? We know he starts to question God's word. And then he says, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become just like him, knowing good and evil. There's a whole bunch of stuff in this text, and I'm not going to unpack everything. Two big things. When God created them, he created them as image and in his likeness, and he created them to be in need of one another and God. Right? That's in Genesis 2. They're naked and they're unashamed. So they're very aware of their need. They're not afraid of it. They embrace it, in fact. It's what leads them to become one, one flesh without shame. Okay? The, what is the, the serpent saying? He's saying, God's word is a lie. He didn't create you in his image, but if you do certain things, you become like him. And here's the, really, the real tricker for me that's been new as I looked at this passage. He's fundamentally saying you can get what you need outside a relationship. Get it through eating fruit. You can get it through wisdom that this fruit will give you. In other words, you don't have to have relationship anymore to get wisdom, to get knowledge, to get access to the things you need in life. I think he is fundamentally saying the, the goal of life is to make sure you're not in need of anyone, which is why when we hear on the other side of it, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom he sent. What is, what is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Eternal life is them getting back to a relationship where they're in need of you and in need of one another. That's, that's the whole goal. If, I remember uh, reading uh, Dallas's last words, Dallas Willard. It's, it's recorded in the renovated book by J Jim Wilder. Are you guys familiar with Jim Wilder? I would encourage you to read it. It's all about attachment-based uh, formation. 
Dallas finally said, I think what we've got wrong is we thought eternal life was something other than getting reattached to God. Which is why Jesus can say, abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit, that's attachment. Why he praises, I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us, that's attachment. That the goal of our salvation is you get reattached in a relationship with God, that's it. I know a lot of us say that, but for a lot of us, a relationship with God is really a mental assent to ideas. It's not a true abiding in with God because you can't have relationship unless you are needy. Are you following me? Which is why Jesus can say stuff like, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The whole beatitudes are about you starting in a place of need before you get to Jesus' teaching of how you're supposed to live. He realizes if you don't become needy first, you won't have the access to the resources to help you live the life he wants you to live. So God steps into this mess, and I'm trying, I, I want to teach all of Genesis 3, but I don't have the time to. Here's what I want to get to. When, when, after they eat it, they realize they're naked. By the way, in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, the word naked are two different Hebrew words, by the way. So it's kind of confusing. Because in Genesis 2, they're naked and not ashamed. Genesis 3, they're naked and ashamed. Well, the, the word naked in both those texts are different. The first one is naked, nothing in between us, and we have everything we need with each other and God. So we move toward each other. The other one is relational poverty. That's the nakedness in Genesis 3, okay? Uh, again, I wish I could teach so much more. There's so much depth in this passage. But I want to get to this. They hear God in, walking in the garden, the cool of the days. They're hiding from him in the, amongst the trees. And the Lord God calls to man and he says to him, where are you? Now, we all know this. We've all taught this. God knows where Adam is, right? So what's the question for? Adam doesn't know where he is. He's inviting Adam to locate himself. Adam, do you know where you are? You know how many leaders wake up one day and go, how in the world did I get here? It's because this question wasn't being asked enough in their life. They had no idea where they were until they realized they were in a place that they didn't want to be, and now it's too late. Because here's what happens, and we, if we all breathe, believe that God's word is breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that every single word matters, then the answer that Adam gives is really, really for our good. Where are you, Adam? And Adam doesn't go, I'm hiding over here in case you can't find me. He says, I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden. And this is what he says. I was, say it with me, afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. When God asks, where are you? He's asking, do you know what's going on inside of you? And the way that you find out is you talk to him about your feelings. I'm afraid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have fear. You know that you're in a dangerous world. You know that you need someone bigger than you, stronger than you, smarter than you to help you navigate this world. That's what the Proverbs are all about. It's like saying, son, if you don't have fear, I'm concerned for you. That's what he's fundamentally saying. There, there's a woman that you should have fear of. There's a way that you should have fear of. There's a council of fools that you should have fear of. Healthy fear says there's danger in the world, but God is over all of it, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you'll have your fear and go to God with it, not only will he protect you, but he will guide you with wisdom to get through it. I get concerned when people are fearless. Those are crazy people. Don't ever tell people to have no fear. You're fundamentally telling them to not have faith in the one who can save them when you do that. 
Because in all you're going, well, yeah, but it says fear not. Yeah, it's the most repeated command in the scriptures. Jim Welch wrote a beautiful article on the fear not is actually a positive command. Because what is it always followed with? Fear not for I am with you. If you don't have fear, you won't move to the one who will be with you. Right? Think of your children. If they had no fear, they would never run into your bed at night. They would run the streets Get, putting themselves in all kinds of danger. Every good parent instills a healthy fear. Why? So they'll run to you for protection. That's the whole goal. Are you with me? Okay. I'm going to give you five questions. I'm only going to be working on where are you in this session because we don't have time for all of them. These are the five questions in Genesis 2 and 3. Or Genesis 3 and, uh, yeah, just Genesis 3. Where are you is the one we're talking about. That's a feeling question. I'm sad. I'm lonely. I'm hurt. I'm angry, I feel guilt, shame, gladness. Who told you that's what story you've been believing? The story I had been believing was when people die in your life, we don't cry about it, Jeff. So I shut down my emotions when I was eight years old when my grandpa died and I was told to put a happy smile on my face because he was in a better place. That wasn't what Jesus did when he ran to his friend's tomb, Lazarus. He wept, even though he's gonna raise him from the dead, Right? Jesus wept over Jerusalem in deep sadness because they were lost and he knew it was coming. So who told you? What story have you been believing? The one I believed was that big boys don't cry. That if you have faith, you won't have fear. And on and on and on. I can give you a whole bunch of taglines I was given as a kid. And what did you do? The next thing God asks is once he realizes They realize what they've done. He asks, what did you do? And here's the question. What are you doing with your emotions? What are you doing with your desires? Where are you going to have them met? When I talked to those leaders in Indonesia, I was just saying, it's very possible that someone wasn't asking that question enough in somebody's life. Because here's the deal. You always do what you desire. Every behavior comes out of your beliefs and your desires. They're always a combo of those things. You, you, you never do something because you don't want to. <laughs> People always do what they want. And that's why you find yourself going, how did I do what I didn't want before? And Paul goes, there's a body of sin in you. It's constantly giving you desires, and you gotta, you got to pay attention to it. Who's going to save me from it? Jesus. Now, what do you need is another one. Uh, the woman looked at the tree, and she wanted wisdom. She needed to have it apart from God. And that's where she went. So those are five questions. I'm not going to get after all those. But here's a process I'm going to give you for, for what transformation looks like. And then I'm going to show you how it works. Okay? Um, when we say out loud, I'm just going to do it as an example. When I say I'm sad, if, I say, if you, you talk to me, I go, I'm really sad. When I say it out loud, it's real. That's called confession. When we confess something, we're saying out loud what's going on inside of us. And it's not just sin. It can be lots of things. <laughs> I'm, I have fear. I have sadness. I'm hurt. I'm angry. Okay, when we say it out loud, we're confessing it, and that helps us to accept the truth of it, hopefully with somebody else. That's where community, genuine community is where you can truly show up. That's what community really is. And if I can show up with you and you say to me, and I go, man, I lost my friend when he took his life, and I have a lot of sadness over that, and you look at me and go, that sounds really sad, then you're attuning with me. Okay, by the way, this is good parenting advice. When your kids say they feel something, attune with them. Don't diminish it. Like, oh, that really hurt. Don't go, that's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt that bad. 
Now go, that sounds like it really hurts. You don't have to bring rationalism to their feelings. Let them show up with what they're going through. I'll get back to that in a sec. And then we can do attachment because they can say, when I showed up and I said I was hurt and you attuned with me and said that sounds really painful, then we got attachment, which is you didn't leave me emotionally when I showed up with pain. This is covenantal love. This is the love of God. You can show up with anything you've got. This is Job. What did Job do right? He kept showing up. What did his friends do wrong? They tried to get him to stop showing up. Right? They tried to explain away everything instead of saying, Job, keep telling God how much you hate what happened, how angry you are, how confused you are, how hurt you are. God commends Job because he stayed in relationship with God. The real Job showed up. That's coven- and the real God can handle that because this covenantal love is not bothered by your need or your struggle or your mess. He welcomes it. He loves it. Man, I, we got to preach this in our gatherings. Like God wants you to tell him the truth about what you're going through, even if it's wrong. That's the Psalms, by the way. Don't ever teach the Psalms in such a way that everything that's said in them is always true of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the time you get to the end of the psalm, it says, God will not abandon his afflicted one. But he starts off saying, it does feel like you left me. I love that about the psalms. It's like, show up with where you're really at and then let God do the last part, which is align you to the truth. Correction. Here's sadly what happens in most of our, our relationships. People confess and then we correct. No relationship. No attunement, no connection, no love, no care, no compassion, no empathy. They say, this is what I did. And you go, that's wrong. You need to repent and change. It's like, that's not what Jesus ever did. The woman at the well, how long is he with her? By the time he's done with her, she goes to the city and says, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Why would you be excited about that? Because when she did, when she showed up, when she was seen, when she was known, she experienced compassion and love and kindness. She experienced the covenantal love of God in communion with the living God in front of her because he was willing to accept her for who she was and what she had done and where she was at. Man, if our churches were like this, everybody would be there. Everybody would want it. They all want it, by the way, because they're all called to return like what? How do you enter into the kingdom of God? Like a little child. This is just doing child work again. Letting people be in need in a community that's ready to be with them in their need. This is at the heart of the kingdom. This is what Jesus leads us to do. I already quoted this verse, Matthew 5, and I want to just get to this. Jesus felt all the feelings Right? Jesus felt sad, wept. I already, already referenced that over Jerusalem, over his friend. He felt anger, threw, turned over the tables in the temple courts because they were keeping people from getting to God. He felt fear in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wept and asked God if there's a way that he could do this differently. It says he's, he had anguish, sweating like drops of blood. He felt hurt as his friends abandoned him, denied him, betrayed him. I mean, he is hurt physically. He was lonely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the perfect human who lived the perfect in-need life with God his Father and kept telling his Father everything that he was going through. 
He didn't diminish it. He didn't hide it. He didn't pretend like it wasn't real. Are you with me? This is why we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. That word sympathize means he's able to feel what we feel with us while we're feeling it. Why? Because in every respect, he's been tempted, or I think the better translation is tested, as we are. He's gone through all the struggles we go through, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, say this with me, in our time of need. Here's here's what I want to be really clear about. If you don't feel your feelings and know your needs, you can't go to a high priest who will meet them. He's not a high priest notionally. He's a high priest relationally. He's not a high priest theologically only. He's a high priest that enters in relationally to your need. So we need to create a culture where being in need is normal and telling the truth about our neediness is welcomed. Which is what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. Now, I used to read that as two separate ideas. I think he's telling you how to do it. Put away all falsehoods, speak the truth, Let's start with one of them. Be angry. Don't sin in your anger. Be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I used to hear that taught. If you and your wife are having a fight and you're angry with each other, don't go to sleep until you resolve it. Really bad counsel, by the way. If you're having a fight and it's getting dark, go to sleep. You're probably too tired. And when you wake up, you'll see some things differently, right? I think what it's saying is don't put your anger in the dark. And I think we could put other words in there. Put away all falsehood. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Your members one of another. Be sad. Do not sin. Don't put your sadness in the dark. Be hurt and don't sin. Don't put your hurt in the dark. Experience your guilt for sin, but don't sin. Don't put that in the dark. Like I think we could just go through the list. It's like, what is he saying? Be a confessional people who don't put things in the dark, who bring things into the light, including your feelings. Paul is really clear about this. I, I, still, I, I have the hardest time understanding how we got to where we're at other than the enlightenment and some of the other things that, that maybe Gnosticism, which is you know, detached from body, so we've got this knowledge but no body connected to it. Therefore, we have to shut down our feelings because you feel your feelings in your body. I'm not sure how we got here, but it's like in the scripture everywhere you look. Now you're not going to be able to read the scripture and not see it, I promise you. Start looking for all the emotions. Look for all the commands around the emotions. Look at Jesus' life and all of his emotions. I mean, it's everywhere. And here's, I'm going to, con- we got about 12 minutes, I think, or somewhere around there. Maybe 15. Um, I have tell, what time do I have to tell? Anyway, you don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> here's the key. When you feel your feelings and tell the truth about them, you become in need for relationship and move toward God and others. When you impair them, put them in the dark, you avoid relationship and you move away from God and others. If you're wondering why so many people are isolated, it's because they probably, were, they probably learned somewhere that when I was vulnerable with what I need, it didn't go well for me. So now I'm going to stay away from being in need 
and therefore I'm going to stay away from relationships. And you know what? The way forward isn't for you to shame them back into relationship. Like, why aren't you guys going to church? Why aren't you showing up at the gathering? And then we quote, do not give up meeting together as some are the habit of doing, Hebrews 10, which is awesome verse. But let's be clear, it's, it's when people have found community and a safe place to show up and to be messy and broken, and then they found their needs met in a healthy community, that that's a good verse. It's not a good verse when they come into a context and they're shamed for their behavior, they're shamed for their needs, they're shamed for being weak. And sadly, I think the church is being known as the place you have to have it together to come to. Instead of it's the place where the people who know they don't have it together go. What did Jesus say? I did not come for the healthy. I didn't come for those who don't think they need a doctor. I came for those who know they're sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the unrighteous. You know who gets a relationship with Jesus? Unrighteous people. Sick people. People who are in need, who are broken, who are weary, who are heavy laden. Come to me and I'll give you rest. You know who doesn't go to Jesus? The righteous the healthy, the people who have it all together because they don't need them. I hope that's not us. I want to put in front of you a chart. This is just kind of, I'll draw it to a conclusion with this. If the, if the right side of the chart is if we're feeling our feelings, it's where we go. And I'm going to give you eight emotions. The left side is what happens when we stuff it. Okay? So if I feel my fear, I know that I need help, protection, and refuge from somebody bigger than me. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the internal gift I get is I put faith in someone bigger than me, God, or my parents when I'm a kid, and then I get wisdom to navigate very dangerous situations with his help. If I don't feel my fear, I try to believe I'm in control of the uncontrollable, which I experience anxiety inside of me, which leads me to rage against anybody who threatens my sense of control. Anybody ever done that? I used to think that my strong structure and systems that I put in place in our church was because I was just trying to lead well. Now I realize I was trying to control a lot of things that were outside of my control. And the people felt rage every time that they were outside of my control. I never raged out loud. I was a real quiet rager. (laughs) But you felt it. If you you feel you're hurt, you know that you need attention. By the way, parents, that's a Band-Aid. When your child comes to you and they say, I got a boo-boo, you don't go, it's not a big deal. You go, oh, tell me about that. Remember at mission, acceptance, attunement, that's attunement. Tell me about that. Oh, that looks like it really hurts. What do you need? I need a Band-Aid. No, you don't. There's not even a cut. By the way, invest in Band-Aids. It's far cheaper than counseling. I'm not kidding. I'm paying for some counseling right now uh, for my kids. (laughs) Um, No, it's like the the Band-Aid is the reminder all day long that my mommy and my daddy gave me attention when I felt pain. And when we learn that we're going to get attention when we feel pain, then we learn to have courage to face more pain. Why do so many in the church, why are they so afraid to go out on the mission of Christ? Because they probably got hurt and no one attended to their pain. Why are so many pastors leaving the ministry right now? Because they were hurt the last couple years and no one said it was okay to cry about it. It hurt. COVID hurt. The political stuff hurt. People leaving the church hurts. We gotta tell the truth. Stop pretending like it doesn't hurt. It hurts. You need a band-aid from the divine healer. Let the Holy Spirit come and attend to your pain. Instead of trying to pretend like you don't need God. By his wounds, you're healed. Sadness, 
When we feel sadness, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And then we can accept internally that we, you know what, I had to accept that my friend is not coming back. The guy that took his life that I told you about earlier, those of you who were here. Did, that didn't happen quickly. I had, to, I had to have a lot of sadness for several years where I cried and I cried and I cried over his loss. And I cried out to God and I said, how could you let this happen? I had anger. And I had to tell him that too. And I started to give him my whole self. By the way, I used to give God my polished self. Now I'm learning how to give him my real self. Right? I was so far away from God because I was giving him the polished version of Jeff. But the more real I became, the more he got the real me. And my intimacy with the Lord is at an all-time high because I'm not afraid to tell him what I really think anymore. Why? Because I know he loves me for who I am. He doesn't love the future version of me more than the present version of me. He loves the messy Jeff as well as the future sanctified Jeff the same way. And we got to believe that, otherwise we're not going to go to him with the truth. But if I stuff my sadness, I'm going to experience self-pity, which is I've got to let, I want others to feel sad for me because I won't feel my sadness myself. And then I become very demanding in my relationships. If I'm afraid to say I'm lonely, like Adam was very lonely in Genesis 2 without a, a mate, if he didn't feel that loneliness, he wouldn't have needed anybody. But he, God made sure, remember the story, he brings all these animals to him to name them. That's after God says he's all alone. But I think he's kind of going like, Adam doesn't know how lonely he is. Let's make sure he feels super lonely. So let's bring all the animals so at the end there'll be no suitable helper found for him. So by the time Adam's done, he's going like, how come I don't have somebody? Like, I think that's what's going on in that story. And God's going, good, now you want somebody. Sadly, so many marriages have stopped feeling lonely for each other. They've learned how to be alone, but not lonely for as I started to do my work, my wife would ask, how are you feeling today? I'm like, I'm feeling really lonely. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, did I do something wrong? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm healthier than I've ever been. I like want you so badly. <laughs> loneliness is, a, is the thing that happens to lead you to somebody else. That's the whole point of loneliness. If you don't feel lonely, you won't want anybody. So you, what you get is, I, want, I need to be known, naked, not ashamed, so I can get intimacy or intimacy. Intimacy is when someone really knows you for who you really are, and they still will not leave you. Most of us don't know what intimacy is. We think it's sexual. It's not that. It's so much better than just that. If I don't feel it, I'll move to apathy. Who cares? I'm not going to have any friends anyway. That's just the way the ministry is. It's a lonely place. That's a ton of you in the room, sadly. And then we become invulnerable. I'm not going to let anybody in again because people leave. And then that we just become hard-hearted. By the way, my new version of hard-heartedness is not I just, I sin. It's that I don't want to be in need. So I harden my heart so I won't be in need again. Next four, and then I'll come to a close. If we feel our anger, then we'll have a passion inside of us that can speak out, have a voice to be heard. Jesus, we call the cross, the journey to the cross, the passion of the Christ. Why? Because he starts with turning over the table temples, and then from that point on, he is on a straight course right to the cross, and it's for the joy set before him that he's willing to endure the pain of it. When you have really healthy anger, you're willing to go through the pain of suffering for the thing that's on the other side of it. it this is what gives people deep passion. I meet with people regularly. I'm now a Tim Man coach. I have about eight guys right now I'm meeting with. I can't tell you the number of pastors who, after they've been in it for several years, have no passion left. And I just go like, we got to help you get your anger back. 
Because when you got into this, you had, you had passion. You wanted the lost to be found. You wanted the gates of hell to be broken down. You wanted the city to be transformed. Like you, you were like a raging ball, not raging, you were an anger ball of passion. And you were speaking out. And now you're like, it doesn't matter anyway. Who cares? I'm like, this is not okay. That's called depression. It's because you've, you've stopped feeling your feelings for so long. And i got to help them get their heart back because they're so detached completely from themselves and from everybody else. If they feel a healthy shame, then they realize they, they have an attunement. They need other people. They're not all that, but they are all that. Healthy shame says, I'm made in the image of God, and I'm one part of the body. I'm a big deal, and I don't have to be big. So I have humility, and I connect to others, and I know that I need them, and they need me, and we work together. Unhealthy shame says, I should be bigger. I should do more. When you have unhealthy, toxic shame, when you stuff it, you, you say things like this, I should, I should, I should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. My, my guy said to me, Jeff, you should on yourself all the time. By the way, you, a lot of you in the room have been shooting on yourself far too much. The words S-H-O-U-L-D, should, just to be clear, okay? And then what we do is we, we move to hiddenness in our relationships. We either become workaholics or performance addicts. One of the reasons why I think pastors are addicted to preaching I love preaching. I think it's a good thing. I think some of us are addicted to it. We, don't, we wouldn't know what our life would be like without it. It's because it's a toxic shame addiction that we got to keep performing. we got to keep getting the ahas, the, the amens, the I love you, that was well done. And it's because we, we don't like ourselves. <laughs> we don't like being with ourselves. We don't like being honest with ourselves. And so that's why Monday for most pastors is like the day of depression because the hit didn't work. Right? Anybody with me on that one? There's an addictive cycle that you go through, and it's no different than someone who goes to the bar and gets drunk. The next day you have a hangover. How many pastors have hangovers, emotional hangovers on Monday? Because it didn't do it for you. And you need to be able to be able to preach without anything coming back because you're doing it for him. Man, I, I, when I had to preach to a camera for two years during COVID, I realized how addicted I was to people's response. I was tons of toxic shame in my life. I had learned how to perform for favor. Even though you heard me preach the gospel all the time, that that's not true, my emotional world told me it was. Guilt, this is the one we're most familiar with. When we feel our guilt, we know we need forgiveness. We'll get freedom from the burden of sin. If we don't feel our guilt, we move to self-condemnation. Eventually, you become seared. By the way, this is why a lot of the world doesn't have an open heart to the gospel these days, because they don't feel any guilt. And you can't help them get to guilt you'll probably have to start somewhere else. Like, have you ever experienced hurt or sadness? Like, you're gonna get to guilt in their life through a whole bunch of other stuff, but they shut down guilt a long time ago. That's why the world is so seared right now. And you don't get them unseared by telling them how guilty they are. They have to feel guilt. The, the, the spirit can grant, grant that, but there's probably a lot of other feelings they might need before they get there. And then gladness, when I feel gladness, I know I need to celebrate with other people and I experience joy and sadness. This is the blessed of the kingdom, by the way. Joy and sadness together. You guys seen the movie In and Out, or Inside Out? The animated movie Inside Out? That's the whole story is joy, joy, has to, joy gets exiled. If you don't know the story, you should watch it after today. Um, this little girl's family moves from Minnesota to California. Uh, she has to leave everything she knows and loves. She goes into a, probably a subtle depression. In, in, her, in her head, they have all these emotions that are animated by these little figures, and Joy gets exiled from the, the control center of her brain. And sadness has to go out and find Joy. And when, when Riley feels the sadness over everything she lost, she has joy over how much she loved what she lost. 
and then she gets her, her heart back. And I'm convinced this is some of the work we've got to do. I think it's why Jesus starts the whole Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word blessed is real joy. This is the people of God and the way we live. Is this resonating at all? <laughs> By the way, just for the sake of mission, if you want to help people where they're at, pay attention to their internal impairment. It's where they've been running away from God and people. It'll give you a lot of access to what you could help them with. Like when I'm with somebody and they've got a lot of resentment, maybe towards the church, I'll just say, man, it sounds like you've really been hurt. Would you like to talk at all about some of the pain you've gone through with me? By the way, then I get to lead them to Jesus, the one who heals their wounds. The gospel, by the way, has something to say about every one of these emotions. That's what's great about it. These are entry points into our awareness of our need for Jesus. And they become great ways to learn how to do evangelism, I think, in our present context. Because most of our evangelism has been primarily about shame and guilt, but not about sadness and hurt and loneliness. But he's close to the lonely. He draws the lonely into families. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Like, the gospel has good news to every one of these needs. Amen? So here's the question for you. Um, where are you? If God were to show up right now and say, where are you? Where are you? Sad, lonely, hurt, fearful, angry, feeling shame or guilt, gladness. By the way, inevitably, every time I teach this, when we do, if we have a lot more time, people go, how come there's only one positive one up there? And I always say, who told you that? Who told you sad is bad when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn? He seemed to think it was good. Your story has told you that most of these are bad except for glad. But according to God, all of them are good. And he created you to feel them so you'll know your need for him. And in any way in which you don't feel any one of these, it's an area in which you aren't going to him. Which is why I think guilt is the primary one we're okay with, but the rest we don't know what to do with. <laughs> All right, uh, I, I think my time is up.